The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. I have got a great one for you today. We are going old school. Uh, we are going to start off with Ian Pace of Deep Purple. And, of course, the band has a new album called Infinite. You can never go wrong with Deep Purple. On the other side, we have got Montreal native Frank Marino of Mahogany Rush talking about his career and all the things that motivate him. And, um, you know, Rock Candy Records out of the UK, I believe, have Frank Marino remasters coming out this year, including the album Juggernaut. And this episode is a juggernaut. And, of course, speaking of... Records, let us uh, just take a look back at the end of April. We had Record Store Day, which is a great, great event where it encourages people to head over to your local mom and pop shops and buy vinyl and CDs and all kinds of other stuff. But um, I do want to take up that issue of vinyls. A lot of the bands release these limited edition vinyl records, and I'm just baffled by that because... Um, you know, I spent my time going to Tower Records and, and um, HMV and Sam the Record Man and all these great places around the world, and I bought CDs, and so I, I don't know why Record Store Day um, excludes the CD purchaser. I don't know why it's just limited edition vinyl. Let's make some limited edition CDs while we're at it, too. I think we should encourage everybody to go into the brick-and-mortar stores and pick up anything that is music-related. So uh, I just wanted to throw that out there, but uh, there you go. It is a, uh, a an opinion. Uh, you may, of course, uh, choose to share it, or you may, of course, choose to, uh, you know, disagree with it. But it is what it is. Um, let's get the show started on some news. And uh, once again, I have tapped a great source of news and knowledge Bill Leverty, guitarist for the band Firehouse. Of course, if you want anything, Bill, go over to Leverty.com and check that stuff out. And uh, let's just get started. Here is Bill Leverty of Firehouse with your rock news. Thanks, Mitch. And here's the news. Styx is back with a new album for the first time in 12 years, The Mission contains 14 brand new songs and is slated for release on June 16th. Canadian Lawrence Gowan, best known for his 80s hit single A Criminal Mind, now fronts the band. Also, original Kiss Catman Peter Chris has announced his retirement from performing. His final shows take place in Australia in May and on June 17th in New York City. Expect a hard, rocking final album from the Catman later this year. And finally, we are sad to report Thunder in the East band Loudness from Japan, best known for their mid-80s hit Crazy Nights, were forced to cancel their recent U.S. tour after being denied entry into the country. This is not the band's first run-in with American immigration, having been forced to cancel a planned 2014 tour as well. And that's it. Back to you, Mitch. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. And thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure to have you do the rock news. And without further ado, let's get into our first interview with 
Deep Purple drummer Ian Pace. We talk, yes, of course, new album, Infinite, but we also talk about his work with Whitesnake, Paul McCartney, and the Velvet Underground. So without further ado, here is the one, the only, Deep Purple drummer, Ian Pace. We are speaking with drummer Ian Pace. The new album by Deep Purple is Infinite. Uh, Ian, pleasure to speak with you. Rob, thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Yeah, and you know, I've got to say, with a person with such a pedigree as yours, these kind of interviews are difficult because whatever question I ask, I know there's like 15 that I didn't ask. So <laughs> we'll sort of do our best. Let's start off with uh, the new album. Getting incredible yeah. reviews, rave reviews. Um, it just seems to me that the band is getting stronger and stronger and continues to be vital. Um, talk to me about making this album and just still being able to deliver the goods. Well, when we, when we met up with Bob Ezrin the first time four years ago, it was a real uh, shot in the arm for uh, getting back to enjoying studio work. Um, I can't say we've really honestly enjoyed uh, being in the studio for the last 20 years. It's been sort of, sort of something we had to do rather than something we wanted to do. Uh, hence, you know, the, the great gaps between <laughs> making records. Um, but when we got in with Bob, it just became uh, a labor of love rather than just a labor. And uh, once we finished the, the Now What record in 2012, the, the, the last thing we said to each other when we left was, we've got to do this again. So uh, when, the, when the timing felt right, uh, we got together again and had a great deal of fun in the studio, uh, bouncing off each other ideas and taking in uh, Bob Ezrin's uh, great studio craft. And the record, uh, like most good records, the record was fast to make. You know, the ideas were there, the inspiration for, for playing was there with the studio with a great sound and uh, a great controlling voice from the... Uh, from the uh, control room, just letting us know when it was right, when it was wrong, and everything just, you know, went along so fast and so smooth. It was just a great pleasure. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and just, so let me continue on that with Bob Ezrin, because Bob has has taken Kiss and Pink Floyd and Alice Cooper, and he's really sort of molded them around his sound. Did How much input did Bob have in terms of the sound and the, the music of the... Uh, that you were making, and how much was it, no, these are our songs, just sort of produce them? Somewhere in between. Bob first came to see us live uh, about five years ago at a, at a venue we played in Toronto. And that's when we were talking about collaborating. And he said, look, what we need to do is get in the studio and capture, try and capture what you have on stage. He said, you know, no point in going and trying to make a Sgt. Pepper or a Pet Sounds or a, a concept record. That's not what you do. But what you have on stage is special, and we've got to try and capture that. Uh, and once, uh, once we got into that frame of mind, it was, uh, uh, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. You know, we go in the studio once every sort of four years. He lives in the studio 52 weeks a year. So, you know, when he's, when he's talking about the studio side of things, you've got to bow down to his greater knowledge. No matter how many years we've been doing it, how many albums we've made. Um, so he said, go away, write some music, which we did. Uh, and then he gets everything in an, into a very tight format, and we have like two weeks of pre-production before we immediately go in the studio. Um, at the point we have the songs, we send the, the rough demos off to Bob, and he puts his uh, two cents worth in to uh, say, well, I like this, I don't understand that, I hate that. Uh, I and mean, again, you take it all on board. 
But Bob being a, a really good musician himself with a great musical brain, um, he often has ideas which uh, would come under the headline of, uh, of writing. So to a, to a small extent, Bob sort of gets uh, in on that part of the action too. You know, when we get uh, come to a dead end, he'll just say, well, why don't you try this? And he'll come up with a suggestion which maybe uh, opens the door again for the rest of the song. So to, to a limited extent, Bob gets involved with the, with the writing of the tunes too. But when it comes to the studio, he says, look, I'm just going to get your sound. I'm just going to capture your sound the best way I can. And that's what happens, you know. Uh, he will try and influence something, you know. He, if, for the drums, he, he might say, the snare drum sound needs to be deeper for that. Can you detune? And if I agree with him, I'll do it. And if I don't agree, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, but I say, you know, he's there for a reason. He's there because we've asked him to be there. And when, uh, when he suggests something, uh, it's for a reason. It's not because he, you know, he wants to hear his own voice. He, he suggests something because he wants to make it better. Now, I say you don't always have to agree with him, but you do take on board that maybe something is missing. And you, and you solve whatever problem it might be. Yeah, he, and, and he's, he's, he's just a master at his craft. Um, Roger Glover recently said that albums are a dying art form, that they're a waste of time and effort. Is, do you agree with that, or is that sort of like, what's he talking about? No, it's a, a generalization, really. You know, everybody knows that uh, uh, the record industry isn't what it was 20 years ago, and definitely not what it was 40 years ago. Um, in those days, if you, were, if you were lucky enough to get a hit record, uh, that's what you lived on, and you sold that record by doing tours. Now it's the other way around. You, you earn your corn on stage, and you make records to keep, keep new music happening and to make people aware that you're still there. So it's a complete role reversal. Uh, you see, so many artists now don't make albums. They'll make singles or they make EPs because that, that, the, the fact of life is that uh, you, you, you earn your living on stage. But we've always made albums. You know, we've had a few singles which uh, have either been forced on us or they've come from albums. This is what we do. Uh, we've been doing it so long now with a, with a certain degree of success, so we see no reason why we should change. But as a generalization, Roger is right. You know, people don't, don't get involved with albums the same way that they used to. So I don't think he was putting it down. I think it was just a fact of life, the, the world we live in. Right. And, and, and if I may, on my, on my end, I think a lot of that has to do with the, the experience. Back in the day, you had either a vinyl or a CD, and you had a booklet and, and the artwork and all this. Now you just go to iTunes, and you have, you have air. <laughs> and it's like, well, how are you going to live yeah. with air, you know? Um, speaking of Bob and, of course, Alice Cooper, you are on tour with Alice this summer. Uh, yep. An incredible package. I mean, that's just going to be, you know, whatever, three, four hours of pure musical genius. Um, talk to me a little bit about that tour and the pairing, and do you think that it will be extended at any point? Well, let's, let's not forget Edgar Winterband on that as well, because that's, yes. that's another fine yes. fine set of musicians there. Yes. Um, you know, in this day and age, you know, concert tickets are not cheap. So if you're going to put something together, let's make sure that everything that people see there is something worth going to, uh, to you know, put your hand in your wallet for. Uh, and uh, putting these three acts together, I mean, it gives a nice variety of rock and roll, but every act is great. I mean, Alice, God bless him, he's one of the hardest acts in the world to follow. I mean, he just does such a number on stage, you know, you really have to uh, make sure you, you are 100% every night. 
but that's a good that's a good that's a good push you know good pusher you can't you know you can't re- relax and uh, take it easy for a, for a minute uh we've worked with ours before um become i wouldn't say close friends but you know good buddies because we see each other very infrequently that will obviously change throughout uh, the summer uh and we played with edgar's band a couple of times um and we all sort of know each other as being professionals you know on that level the tour should should run sweeter than up you know uh, people do their job finish on the right time do, you know play properly so as a tour uh that's going to be great but the people involved are nice as well so socially it's uh it's, i'm looking forward it can be a great pleasure and if there's a, an opportunity opportunity to do it somewhere in the future again um of course i think uh We'd all, all three bands would jump at it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's nice to know when you've got, uh, again, all you have to think about is turning up to the gig and doing your stuff. And you know that everybody else in the other bands is doing exactly the same thing. And it's just so sweet and so nice when, when a tour works like that. Yeah, it's going to be a great night. Um, all right, let me get into some of the more random questions here. Uh, sure. Run Devil Run, the Paul McCartney album. Yeah. That you got to play on back in, I guess, 98, 99. 99, yeah. 99. Um, just talk to me about that a little bit, because, I mean, you've obviously played with great talents your entire life, from Ian to Glenn, uh, you know, Glenn Hughes, David Coverdale. Yeah. But Paul McCartney. I mean, it's Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Right? I mean, there, there, there's a level, and then there's that other level. What then was there's that? that stratosphere, yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, that's... Well, uh, what was that like for you? Do you approach it like <laughs> any other gig, or you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm, it's a Beatle. Like, talk to me a little bit about that album and that again, experience. Again, it's somewhere, it's somewhere in the middle, you know. I've had the pleasure of meeting um, uh, Ringo a few times, and George, God bless him, was a great friend. Uh, I never met Lennon, uh, and I'd never met Paul. Um, but I just got a call. I was in the kitchen having a cup of tea. My wife said, uh, oh, Paul McCartney's office on the phone. So I, obviously I took the call. And they just said, are you busy between this date and that date? And I looked and said, no, why? So Paul's doing a rock and roll record. Would you like to play on it? Well, what do you say? <laughs> what the hell do you say? You, you don't um and ah, you don't, you don't say I'll call you back. You say, yes, of course I will. Uh, so it was that. Uh, they gave me a little, little bit more information about what, what, he, what the plan of the record was. And it was just to do some simple songs that actually turned him on when he was a kid. When he was 15, 16 years old, the things he heard, the things he wanted to do. Uh, so, you know, he told, they told us who else was in the band, and Dave Gilmore's been a pal for a long time. And uh, Mickey Green was, you know, legendary when I was a kid, uh, together with Pete Wingfield on piano. You know, it was, a, it was a nice little band. So we turned up on a Monday morning, and... Uh, Everything was set up exactly like the Beatles would have set up in Abbey Road Number 2. Drums in the same place, bass amp, guitar amps in the same place. Paul wanted it like that. And uh, basically, he just came with a big big sheaf of papers, different songs. And we tried one. If it didn't work in two or three takes, he'd throw it away and bring another piece of paper out. It was, that, you know, quick arrangement, quick recording. Uh, and that's the way it went. And we did most of the album was done in five days. But uh, I know, had I, played, uh, had I played like crap on Monday, I wouldn't have been on there on Tuesday. <laughs> but it, was, it worked out okay. And I knew it was no, it was no long-term gig, because, uh, you know, Paul moves on from one thing to another quite quickly. 
you know, and, and I was still, you know, working with purple. So it was never, never a, um, a conscious thought of it being something long-term. But I did have a great deal of fun with him. We did a couple of very useful um, charity shows and a few TV shows, and I enjoyed every day of it. But I, but I, I really knew what it was, you know. It was just something for a little while. Right, it was. But it was it's, an, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a great thing to have on your CV, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a great little hit and run. Um, another another hit and run that I want to just quickly mention is the Velvet Underground album Squeeze. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, talk to me about that one because that that's one of these sort of revered albums. I don't I don't know if I want to call it an underground album, but Doug Yule, you know, musical genius. Yeah. What was that like? Because that was early on in the career to to get on that album. Well, I tell you, it was so underground. I didn't even remember doing it. Uh, I only I only got wind of this a few years ago that somebody said, "Ah, oh, you played with Velvet Underground." I had no recollection of it at all. And then they said, "Well, it was then, and it was done in New York." And then a little a little switch went on in my head, uh, and it was '68 or '69. I got a call that some guys need a drummer uh, for a session. And I was doing nothing. said, so, okay, what they want? I just want to cut a couple of tracks. So I went in the studio, met these, these young fellas, and uh, we worked out something, and I played on them, and I said goodbye. They paid me a session fee, and that was the end of it. I didn't know it was Velvet Underground. I had no, no idea who they were. So it was literally four or five years ago. So somebody said, oh, yeah, didn't, you know, this record you played with Velvet Underground. I'm going, what? I don't remember doing that. It's that far, far ago, in, you know, and it was just a, a three or four hours in my life. But nobody ever said it was Velvet Underground. And, I, and at that point, I don't even know if that would have registered. Yeah. You know, and when, they, when I, somebody listened to the tracks, and I did, well, you know, it sounded like me. So it probably was me. <laughs> that's great. That's great. You're you're checking Wikipedia and you're like, oh, hey, look at that. I I played on this album. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ian Gillen, he uh, ran off with Black Sabbath back in the early '80s. Did Born Again. When you caught wind of that and you see him up there singing Paranoid and singing all these songs, what was the reaction? Because I mean, you know, ostensibly he did a great job, but it's still the voice of Deep Purple singing Black Sabbath, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you have to remember that, you know, uh, when Ian was out of the band of that period, that it, uh, it was a turbulent time, and, he, and, he, and he, he didn't leave, you know, on, you know, because he wanted to. It was uh, pretty political at the time. Uh, so what's he going to do? Sit at, sit, sit at home just sitting on his ass doing nothing? He gets an off to work with a successful band, of course he's going to take it. Was it right was it correct well i don't think you could look at it like that but you know you say you know i said he did a good job ozzy wasn't there gillen was um again i don't think he ever saw that as a long-term gig um you know there's, there's a weird thing when you work with other people um it's different when you're working with purple it's like coming into your house you open your door it's your your living room your your chair your bed and when you're working with other people, it's not like that. <clears throat> in purple, you're playing your own music. When you work with anybody else, you're playing their music. So it never feels like home, no matter how good it is. It never feels like, and I'm sure it was the same for Ian. Uh, but it also shows the, um, the limitations of the guys who can actually do the job. You know, I'm not saying there aren't some great young guys out there, some wonderful singers, uh, and some great, great instrumentalists. 
but it, it, it's all become pretty generic now. It's very, very hard to tell one from another. And if anything that our generation did have, which, which is special, is the, the individual characters of the musicians and the vocalist are pretty easy to recognize. And I think that's sort of special. Like people like to know who they're listening to. So I think bringing in somebody unknown into that Sabbath job, as opposed to somebody whose voice is recognizable, uh, I think it was an obvious choice for them as Ian was sitting around doing nothing. Yeah, it really was. And, and, and the album, though, sort of belittled at the time. Historically, if you look back now, it's actually got some great stuff on it. I mean, you know. Um, you can make the best record at the wrong time. Yes, absolutely. And people ignore it. And you can make an average record at the right time. And you find you've got a number one hit for like 12 months. That's, there's no logic to it. You know, I'm sure if Sgt. Pepper was released today, it would be ignored. I don't think it's the way the world is today. No matter how good it is, because the quality wouldn't have changed, but the world that it's in is totally different. So timing is so important. I remember when I was in Whitesnake and we came over to do a tour uh, of the States. That was the English Whitesnake. Uh, great band. Wrong label, wrong time, wrong agent, wrong everything. You know, crashed and burned after that. Nothing to do with the band, but it's just about what goes on around you and when you do stuff. So, you know, it, <laughs> when people say a lot of luck's involved in this game, they really mean it. There really is a lot of luck. Yeah, you know, and that actually brings me to my next question. Uh, the White Snake album, Saints and Sinners. Yeah. Got some great tracks on there. Uh, Crying in the Rain, Here I Go Again. My personal favorite, Dancing Girls, though it'll never be played live again, which is too bad. But you're right. You know, these songs, Crying in the Rain, Here I Go Again, back in 82, you know, modicum of success, you know, the meter, yeah. the, the, the needle on the meter, you know, a little bit to the right. 1987 redone, massive, massive hit. Um, there you go. You know, talk to me about that album and you know the other albums that you did with with David because uh, it really was a different White Snake, but it was sort of a musician's musician's White Snake. Just fabulous yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, when when uh, David asked me to join the band because they had a drummer before me, a very good player called Duck Dow. Uh, when he left it, and uh, I was sitting at home doing nothing again, uh, I said, sure. Uh, my my only problem with Whitesnake was I never understood why, it kept, why he kept calling it Whitesnake. Really, it should have been the David Coverdale band, because that's what it was. No matter what was going on instrumentally, it was David's band. Um, and I went into it uh, knowing that that's what it was. But uh, again... <laughs> How can I say this without no sour grapes here? But um, the rest of us worked very, very hard, and David took all the loot. <laughs> uh, and so that was a, that was a little tough to take. We didn't realize at the time, but that's what was going on. Uh, and I don't blame him for it. You know, it's, without it being that way, it was his name on the marquee. Um, but I think you know, and it, for me, it wasn't a big deal. I had I still had income coming from from Deep Purple. So, you know, a, f a few hundred bucks either way a week didn't make any difference to me. But a couple of the other guys, you know, I look back, they worked just as hard. And uh, I don't think they were probably treated as well as they should have been. But the band itself was great. 
and it was the funniest time, the funniest 18 months, two years I had in my whole career. It was just one long, uh, ridiculous party. And I look back on that time with great fondness, just for the, the, the fun we had on stage and the fun we had off stage. And it also speaks to the importance of brand over band, right? Because, you know, obviously Deep Purple has changed members over the years, and yet the yep. name Deep Purple packs in the fans. And, and same with, with Whitesnake. I mean, you know, True. people always belittle Kiss. Oh, you change two players, it's no longer Kiss. But yet Whitesnake has had like 87 people, <laughs> right? And well, yeah, the, yeah, eventually it, it does, you know, it sounds very, very un, un sort of, artistic but it you you does became a become a brand name you know and there's that's nothing to do with the artist that's the the way it's the world is and the way perception is from the public um sure the, the real fanatical fans will know everything about every member that's there they'll know what their birthdays are what the name of their kids are what they have for breakfast but they're one in a thousand the other 999 are casual fans and all they want to hear is the songs they know and if two of the guys are different, they don't care. So long as it sounds the same and the spirit's the same, they're enjoying it in the same way. And once you understand that, you, you realize that, you know, the name of your particular band is bigger than any one of you. That's the way the world is now. And if, if you're lucky enough to have a brand name that you're associated with, never, never put it down, man. <laughs> Never put it down. No, and, and I think Gene Simmons got it right when he says, I would rather be a brand than a band. And, you know, it's just the way it is. We all approach it different ways. Yes. Um, uh, Gene's a very clever guy and an astute, uh, astute businessman. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite like that. I'm no dummy, but uh, to me, I understand that it's the songs and the spirit of what you do on stage that keeps that brand name important because if you don't have that and you don't uh create that thing every night the brand suddenly becomes less uh less important to people so you still have to you still have to make it work you know yeah you do um as, as we start wrapping up i'll finish off with these two questions uh 1984 you you get into the studio and you record perfect strangers the album yeah. you know it was nine years in the making <laughs> Talk to me, first of all, about the pressures, because if you come back and you release a dud, I mean, you're yeah. done. I mean, Deep Purple, is, you know, the career ends there. Um, what was the pressure like going into the studio and getting these songs together and just making basically a perfect album? Uh, well, it, there was no pressure. And, you know, you say nine years in the making, it wasn't. It was a few months because uh, we were all off doing things, other things with other people. And there was a chance that we would never get back together again. So it wasn't something that you, you thought about you know, and uh, worried about. You know, it, you were sort of, it'd be nice if it happened, but you got on with your life. So when we decided in, in 84 to, to give it another shot, you know, getting back into a rehearsal room, uh, within five minutes, it's like that, that period had never, that nine years had never existed. Everybody locked in straight away and, and the idea started coming and, uh, it, it, it was like, you know, if you, you know the way you used to edit tape with a razor blade, you cut out a section where it's like somebody had cut out those nine years. It just slotted straight back in and the ideas came. Uh, the songs were created, went in, uh, got the recording truck and recorded them. The pressure was, there was no pressure at all. We never thought of it that way. We were just 
back together again and having a good time. Uh, and that was the uh, overriding emotion. Once, once we'd made the record, we thought, well, it's okay. That's going to you know, nothing to be, nothing to be frightened of there. And then we saw that the way that the, uh, the, uh, the reaction to the upcoming tours was going, well, we thought, well, this is going to be okay, and we were proved right. Yeah, you, you really were. Um, musically going into it, though, were you thinking we need just to make a Deep Purple record, or were you looking around and sort of seeing Culture Club and, and Duran Duran and, and, all, <laughs> and, and all these other sort of MTV things going on, going, okay, we need to update our sound? Um, you know, where were no, you musically? Not, no, not really. Not really, no. Um, throughout the whole career, we've always gone into making new music and recording it exactly the same way. Uh, to, I think sometime after The Perfect Strangers we probably got a little confused by trying to be something which we probably weren't uh, but at that point we just went in and did it exactly the same way we would have done those nine years and uh, 20 years before and the same way we do it today we go in the studio and we play as a live band with all the hiccups and all the glories that that gives you you know, uh, you know when you get a take of four guys playing live it's not always going to be perfect, but because of that, it's perfect. Whereas if you take something and 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 the more modern recording technique and layer stuff one after another, you end up with perfection. But quite often, it's very sterile, and it doesn't have any connection with humanity at all. So we did it the same way, and, and to try and be part of what was going on in the rest of rock and roll, which quite honestly we didn't like. Why would we? Why would we do it? Why? Why, why would we worry about it? We, we still knew there was a, a massive audience out there for the sort of rock and roll that we created. So it was never a concept of having to try and keep up with the Joneses or, you know, you know modernize. So, no, we couldn't, we couldn't have done it if we'd wanted to, and we didn't want to. And you didn't want to. Um, and, and so I'll finish with these two. Uh, is Infinite the, the last record, or do you still hope to get back in there with Bob Ezrin? Or well, anybody, way, actually. Yeah, but yeah. all the way... All the way through the promo we've been doing on this record and for the and for the upcoming tour, not one of us has used the word last. But there's there's a few you know little warning signs there. Um, the long goodbye tour sort of gives you a clue. Right. Um, how long is it going to last? As long as it can. And if that's two years, that's great. And if it's three years, that's even better. But this will probably be the last you know major round the world tour. Um, and when it, whenever it's finished, we're going to need a rest, a little, you know, a long holiday. And after that, I think we'll probably give each other a phone call and say, what do you want to do? Had enough? Want to quit? Okay. Uh, want to make another record? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Want to do four or five weeks next year? Why not? We've never used the word last. Because it's a pretty scary thing for, but definitely for the three of us who've been there for nearly 50 years. Uh, you know, you can't just shut the door on that part of your life just like that. So what we've done, we know the door is closing. We know it's closer to the end than the beginning. But the door isn't shut yet. But we, we can't go on in the future the way we've been doing it in the past. It's just too too demanding. But hey, I'd, hey. Like to think, I'd like to think we could get another record in three or four years' time if we're all, all vertical and still able to do what we, we need to do. Or... I say at the end of the tour, we just say, it's been great, but I've had enough. But the whole thing of trying to plan a last gig in a last city on a last date, that's pretty scary. Um, and 
we may we we may miss out on a huge payday, but I don't think emotionally we could deal with that. The lead up to a last gig would be very very um very hard. Yeah, and 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 I always just uh, keep in mind that the the Who had a farewell tour in 1981. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah. well, you know, it it you know what happens. You know, you don't retire from something you like, something that gives you pleasure. You don't retire from that. You just understand that there's going to be a day when you physically won't be able to do it to the standard that you want to. And there's no way that we would go on stage being a shadow of what we should be. While we can still cut it, we're going to do it. And, and as, long as, the people, as long as the people keep turning up. Yeah, and they at the do. Point, at the point we don't want to do it or can't do it, then, it's, then that's the end. But we're not going to preempt it because nobody really wants it to stop. But we know it's going to have to stop soon. Is it more challenging for you as the drummer? Because, you, I mean, you, you've sort of got more moving parts going on. I mean, between all <laughs> of, because, you know, we always talk about the vocalist and the voice and the voice and the voice, you know, whether, you know, whether, uh, yeah. but the drummer um, takes a beating too, right? Yeah, the, the difference with the voice is you have, you have something which, together with the rest of the body, ages, and it's a very fragile thing. And it changes, man, it changes, you know, the, all the way through your life, your voice gets more depth, more timber. And if you're a singer, that means some of those notes you used to hit at the top easily just aren't there anymore. But some of those notes that didn't exist in your range at the lower end, now they're there. So there is a, you know, once you understand that as a singer, you learn to accommodate it. As an instrumentalist, so long as all your bits are working, theoretically, the longer you do something, the better you get at it. You know, and... Uh, I, I work more efficiently now. I see, I see videos and films of me in my 20s. I work really, really hard. But I realized half the effort was me flushing my arms around in the air where I wasn't really making any noise. The, the only important bit is where the, the stick hits the, the, the skin or the cymbal. So that's where the effort goes now. So, you know, if I had to do two shows in a night, I could do it. I'd be very tired. But if I had to do two shows a night, when I was in my 20s, working the way I did, uh, I would find that really, really hard. Yeah. And, um, and then I'll, I'll finish with this, because I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't mention it at all. Uh, one of the, to me, greatest Deep Purple albums is Burn. Um, just a, an incredible recording, the songs, just everything, getting uh, Glenn and David in. Um, any memories on Burn and just what it means in terms of the band's career? Um. Well, the, the overriding memory of Burn was in the, um, excuse me a minute, so I've got grandchildren coming in out here. Uh, we were in the rehearsal uh, rooms and we were going over and over and over this song and it kept, it kept getting stuck in one part. Uh, so I was getting so bored. When it came to this part again, I just started playing a solo and they all stopped and said, that's great, do it again. And so it came through my boredom, and they're, they're, they're hitting a brick wall of what they were going to do with the verse. Uh, and once we'd, once we'd you know, thrown that open, then it was just a matter of trying to get a performance in the studio. And I think we did about three takes, uh, two a disaster, and the, the, the good one the one you hear today. Um, it, was, it was that, that hit and miss, you know. And, and just a fabulous album and a, a fabulous chat today, Ian. Absolute pleasure. Um, could all, could, we could do four hours and still not cover everything, but I think, I think we got everything we need today. Of course, a new Deep Purple album is infinite. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to hasten to say one of your best. I mean, it's just a, it's just very, very well done, well put together. The cover art is is, is glorious. It's it's just you know, bravo. It's nice, yeah, yeah, bravo. We're very proud of it. We just hope people enjoyed as much as listening to it as much as we did making it. Thank you, Ian. Cheers, man. Bye bye now. Cheers. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Hey, I'm John Horn. This week on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, we are joined by Josh Gad. Josh Gad. And as much as he wants you to believe that none of it is scripted, I'm telling you that even my name is in a paper in front of me and I'm reading it. And everything that I'm saying right now, I'm also reading. This is very meta. And it's phonetically spelled out, so you it's know how to say Josh Gad. And for some reason, it's also in Spanish. Yo soy Josh Gad. It's called Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. You could download it on the Podcast One app. You can hear it on Apple Podcast Or at podcastone.com. You are done. Thank you very much. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to Rock Talk, and a big thank you to Ian Pace, drummer for Deep Purple. He was absolutely delightful. Do yourself a big, big favor and check out the new album, Infinite, and catch the band on the road this summer with Alice Cooper. That is going to be an absolutely wonderful, wonderful evening of music, and uh, a little sad that they're not coming to Montreal, but that means that I need to get my rear end into a car and uh, catch that tour somewhere on the road. So I'm going to have to do that this summer. But until then, let me just tell you about my own backyard, which is Montreal, and uh, guitarist Frank Marino, who is from here. Um, Just an absolute pleasure to uh, sit down with Frank. He was one of those guys in the 70s and 80s growing up in Canada that everybody revered. Everybody was like, wow, Frank Marino. And so it was just an absolute pleasure to uh, to sit down with him. We talk everything. We talk his career. We talk making albums. We uh, we speak about his family, uh, his religious beliefs, the entire thing. There's nothing that... Uh, we ran the gamut on this one. Uh, if you are a collector of Frank Marino, Rock Candy Records in Europe are re-releasing four albums. Frank Marino's What's Next, Juggernaut, um, Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush Live, and, of course, The Power of Rock and Roll. So do, uh, do yourself a favor and check those out online. While you're checking stuff out online, please head over to Twitter and check me out at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, and on Instagram, which is at Mitch underscore Lafon. So please sign up, follow, uh, you know, check out the madness if you want. And with that, here is the one, the only, guitarist extraordinaire... Frank Marino. We are speaking with Montreal-born guitarist Frank Marino, of course, of Frank Marino, Mahogany Rush. Great, great band through the 70s. You know, it was it was fun back in the day because there was Rush and there was Mahogany Rush. And I remember as a young kid thinking, wow, we have two Rushes and two Rough Riders. We're... we're <laughs> <laughs> we're, 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 we're doing so great in Canada, but, but no pleasure to have you, Frank. Uh, you nice know, I've had a chance. Here. I've had a chance to see you over the years uh, at different clubs around Montreal, and it's just always a spectacular show. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's just this great sense of improvisation, uh, and I mean that in the in the in the, in the nice sense. The, the shows they're never the same. Is that how you sort of approach them? You yeah. Play with feeling. Oh yeah. That's it. That's, I mean, that sums it up 
completely. This, the group has been that way since 1970, 71. It's always been that way. Uh, it's always about improvisation, trying to make it up as we go and trying not to repeat it. Uh, and even to the point where, with probably the exception of two or three songs on my very first album at 16 years old, um, everything was written in the studio at the time. So there was no... This is not a group that ever said, you know, we're going in to do an album and here's the tunes and we're going to rehearse them. And I mean, nothing was ever written before the very day we walked in. Uh, and on day one, I would just say, OK, guys, like, you know, have a coffee. I'm going to write a tune and I'd write a tune. They'd come in and say, here's the tune. And then we'd jam on the tune. And that's how I wrote the tune. So and the lyrics always came last. So uh, it's always been about that. And all the gigs have been about that. There's no script. There's no set list. Uh, we just, you know, go where it goes. And so I guess you could say, in a sense, we're sort of an original jam band. Do you sort of bemoan fan or, or bands that have, you know, for the last 15 years, the same set list? It's the same 12 songs. It's the, or well, is, I, I don't bemoan it. I mean, it, it's got its... it's got its point for a certain kind of music it can be you know it can be what you expect to see for instance you know i would like to see the beatles three times and i want to see certain songs three times so it, it really depends on the kind of music but the beatles are songwriters and they're song singers they're songsters if you want to put it this way my group is really let's let's face it my songs are not uh, you know going to shake the world i mean they're not the high point of what we do they're song they're vehicles that basically carry the ability to jam our way through them and in much like jazz, they have a head and they have a tail, but what's in between is usually pretty well improvised. So in the case of some bands, and I've played with pretty much everybody that are scripted, um, sometimes it's necessary. And I, I would think that you would expect it from certain kinds of music. But, you know, I mean, give an example, if you went to see an orchestra, you know, a 120-piece orchestra, you wouldn't expect them to be jamming. So I think it depends on the type of thing uh, and what they're trying to put forward. I would imagine something like Manhattan Transfer, uh, you know, which does all these vocal harmonies and stuff. They would have to be extremely scripted. Yeah, you would think. Now, so then when you look back on your discography, and, and if you ever, do you, listen, you would imagine that you must listen once in a while, do you go back and start picking them apart and saying, I should have done this here, I should have done that here, there, or... Do you like just the organic nature of it and say, wow, we really captured a moment there? Well, I'm of two minds with that. You're never, and anybody listening to this will say, you're never, you know, every time you go back and you listen to what you did, even an hour after you did it, um, you think, oh, gee, you know, that could have gone here or that could have gone there. But that's largely an extension of how you'd be thinking if you were doing it again. So it's only normal for artists to... I hate to use the word artist because I think we're musicians. It's not the same, but it's 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 very, you know, normal for musicians to, uh, to say, oh, you know, I'd like to try this or I'd like to have tried that or I wonder where it goes. But on the other hand, there are moments that I'll listen and go, wow, did we actually play that? That's really good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so there's, it kind of cuts both ways. I I, I have been one. It comes to mind one time a guy made me listen to a tape. And I was asking, who is that guitar player? And it was me, because it was a tape that he gave me when I was 18 or 19 years old. And he said, uh, you know, this was a tape of you playing at Parc La Fontaine in Montreal uh, when you were like 18 or 17. 
and I didn't know he he didn't you know I didn't hear the beginning of the song or the end. He was playing you know part of the middle jam, and I said, "Who's that guitar player?" Thinking it was something he recorded just recently, and he said, "Well, that's you." And I was very surprised because I have no recollection of it, and I was actually impressed with the player. But if I knew that it was me that he had me to listen to, I would have been totally unimpressed with the player. So it's just it's the way we are as human beings. That's actually I kind of it, funny. Yeah, I think it kind of works that way with our clothing. I mean, we look at pictures of our old clothes and we go, "Oh my God, did I wear that?" <laughs> you know, so or, or did I have that mustache or whatever? So you know, we we change and we 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 tend to see ourselves in slow motion, and it's like the frog, you know, boiling in the water. We we change so much, uh, but we don't notice it because we're changing along with it. And I'm sure that you've met people that you haven't seen for 20 years, and you're like, my goodness, they look like their fathers, you know, or they look like someone you when you knew them a long time ago, you knew their parents, and now you see them and you think it's their parents. So people change, but if you if you lived along with them over the 20 or 30 or 40 years, you never would have thought they changed at all. And it's the same with music. It really is. So, you know, being that the music business is a business and and somewhat corporate. Was there ever a clash when you were making albums? Did, did they come to you and say, hey, we need... <laughs> there was a clash from day one okay. of my first album. It never ended till now. <laughs> this is nothing but a clash with the companies. It, look, when they first signed my band, uh, they saw a 16-year-old kid, a 15-year-old kid, actually, who they thought, you know, these people thought, wow, we can, you know, probably make money with this kid because he's... People are going to see him. He's a guitar player in a mold of something that no one had been doing. And there are, people are excited. So, wow, we're going to sign them to this record deal. So they came and said, we're going to sign you to this record deal, expecting me to say, yeah, great. And I said, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. And from day one, I didn't want to do it because I came from a, from a time when if you did that, you were, you know, among your friends, you were considered some kind of sellout to the commercial world. So it was like purely ideological. I didn't want to get involved with these, you know, big bad businessmen, and uh, and so I said no, and so they they couldn't believe I said no, and they just kept pursuing it and pursuing it, and and the way that they finally convinced me to do it was they said, look, I'll tell you what, we'll put you in this place. It's called a studio, and it's got like a lot of equipment. And I, as soon as I heard the word equipment, I was like, oh really? <laughs> and and they said, and furthermore. You know, we won't tell you anything. You can produce it. You can do this. So consequently, when I signed on to do it and they wrote a little contract, I became the producer of my first album at 16, which is unheard of in those days to let some 16-year-old kid produce his own album, let alone have one. And that carried with me for every record I did. And so what ended up happening was that company sold my rights to the other company, to the other company, instead of me leaving them and signing with new companies as time went on, they actually sold my contract, like they sold me. And so the contract went with it. And so the new companies had to abide by that stipulation that I was to be my own producer and not be bothered. And consequently, I ended up producing everything I ever did with no other outside influence. Now, this caused a huge problem by the fourth album when I went to Columbia because they thought, well, gee, we don't want to have that, but we'll tell you what, we'll honor the contract just to get them on our label and then we'll probably talk them out of it. And they, they figured, 
listen, this guy probably wants to be famous. We'll tell him, we'll give him the world, and he'll let us rewrite the deal. But I, what they didn't know was that they were dealing with a person who really didn't care at all about fame. And to this day, I really don't. I'm, I'm an anti-fame guy. So they were like really nonplussed when they found out that this guy's not going to let us do what we thought we were going to do. And we just signed him to a, you know, a seven-year deal. And so from day one with Columbia, as it was with the first 20th Century Fox and Kotai and Nine Records, they started to struggle against me and they would say, you know, we don't, we, your songs are too long and, you know, this is wrong and we want to do the cover and we want to do this and we want to do that. And I just never played ball with them. I just said, look, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to make the music that I make. And you know what? They say, well, it'll never get on the radio. I say, well, that's okay. You know, like it, I don't really want to get it on the radio, but I want to know if it will get on the radio. And if the answer is yes, I'm happy. And if the answer is no, I'm just as happy because the question was answered. And that's how we had this long, long uh, struggle with, uh, with Columbia until I, I had enough of that, the wars that they were doing and the things they were doing. And they were really made it hard on me. Uh, and by, by 83, after Juggernaut, I was supposed to do another album for them on an eight-record deal. And I just said, no, it was my option, actually. Believe it or not, it's usually the record company's option. But that last record was my option. And I said, I'm not exercising and I'm leaving. And they said, oh, you'll never do that. You know, you're not going to leave the stadium gigs and all the wonderful things that, you, you know, that we can bring for you. And I said, just watch me. And I did. I walked away and I never joined with a major again, ever. And that was in, what, 83? Started, I waited three years before I even did another album. I waited another three years before I did another one. And I just do them when I want and play when I want and tour when I want. And I don't care that, that I don't have any money. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like my interviewing. I, I, I do the interviews I want, and I don't care. At the, no, I'm just kidding. But no, but why were you not seduced by that? Because most because people... I'm I'm a very religious guy. Okay, and 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 really, it comes down to that. I'm a, I'm a guy who I don't like um, I don't like being the center of attention. And that sounds real weird because in my band, I'm totally the center of attention. I'm the singer, I'm the writer, I'm the guitar player, and I'm the center of attention, especially well, in a three-piece band. You're the star attraction. I mean, people yeah, go so, see Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush. That's yeah, so that was another thing. They're the ones that insisted on that. It was never supposed to do that. That was one of those arguments where they, well, we think you should be Frank Marino, and because we're, you know, at the time we're selling personalities, and look at we're, we're going to sell Ted Nugent, and we're going to sell this guy, we're not going to use the Amboy Dukes. I said I don't care, so it was a, that was my compromise, probably a compromise I shouldn't have made. They said at least let us put your name and the band name. I said, well, okay, only if my name is smaller. You know, like the Frank Marino has to be smaller. And and I shouldn't have even done that. But then it, it made worse problems because, and by the way, they used the whole Rush thing. They said, you know, you know it'll also help that you won't be considered this you know, confusion with Rush. I said, well, look, I, I even played gigs with Rush. You know, I did a tour with Rush in the early, early days. It was Mahogany Rush, Rush, and a band called Bull Rush. <laughs> All three bands had the word Rush in the name in Ontario. It's so, a Canadian thing. Uh, yeah, so I, I thought, you know what? I said, I, I, okay, you know, put a little name, just to, you know, get off my back. And that was probably not a smart move because now it created confusion and who was the group and blah, blah, blah. And it, then, they went, then they took 
an album of mine and called it Frank Marino, which they had no right to do on the power of rock and roll. By the, that was the, seven, the sixth album of the deal, and they just did it. They did the cover, which they had no right to do, and they wrote Frank Marino, which they had no right to do. And it was like that caused a huge war between me and, and that company, which really only lasted one more album, and then I walked away. I said, I cannot take this crap anymore. I'm walking away. And they thought, he's never going to do that. Well, I did. <laughs> and I've done it ever since. And uh, certainly I had hundreds of opportunities, hundreds to go to Warner Brothers or to go to Polydor at the time or to go to uh, other labels, A&M, that wanted the act because we were, we were you know, a big act on CBS. And I said, no, I'm not interested. I'm just going to make records and give them to whoever, whatever independent guy I can find. And that's what I did. So, so let me talk about that, because there are so many bands that, for the lack of a better word, they play the game. They'll, they'll yeah. put on the jacket that they're told and get the haircut yeah. that they're told. Yeah, I call they, it a costume. Right, and they don't succeed. Yeah. They, they fail miserably and are forgotten by mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. You're not. So, so how did you manage to endure with you know, the, the record company breathing down your neck? with Live. Live. Okay. So that's, that's. If you deliver live, if you can play live and deliver, you know, like really deliver the goods live to a live crowd, they can't take you down. That's, it's a populist type of musical populist message. If you can actually play live and do well, you know, how many, I mean, I opened so many shows for so many people, and I didn't mind. It wasn't like, you know, I wasn't hoping one day I'll headline. It was like, I don't care. I'll open, I'll close, I'll, I'll be first, I'll be last. It's just, I'll do my thing. And when I do my thing, it doesn't matter when I do it, at one in the afternoon or the first of five bands or the last of five bands. I, there's a certain type of, uh, I don't know what it is, that happens with the audience, and it always works. I've never had a gig where it didn't work in, in 45 years. So if you can, if you can maintain a live presence and give your all, be an honest guy about what you're doing, really play your thing. You don't have to kowtow or try to be different or try to get that crowd or try to get that crowd. You just do who you are, and that will keep you in good stead. You will survive forever like that. That's how I did it. So, That's so, how I continue to do it. Well, in fact, let, let's talk quickly about the live show because there is a DVD that you've been working on for many mm -hmm. years. Five yeah. years, I think it's been. Please. Six and a half. Six and a half. And it does feature live performances. Now, since you're working 12 on hours, it, 12 hours of it. Okay, yeah, so that, that's what I want to get to, because I know there's a couple of clips on YouTube, and I've heard a couple of things from, I believe, your nephew, and, but I don't know what the exact... Is it a biography? Is it just a live concert? <laughs> Explain what it, this DVD it, is for me. Okay, it goes... In order to understand this, again, I, you have to understand my anti-celebrity idea. Right, and we, any, I want to talk any, about that too after. Yeah, but any, anybody who knows me knows that through all the years of rock video, remember when that started, MTV? Frank never did one. Never did a video. Right. And, and it became the only thing to do, and Frank still didn't do it. Why? Why was Frank not doing a video? He was doing records. He was doing gigs. It's because I believe... And I still believe that when you watch music as opposed to listening to it, it removes the ability for the listener to use his imagination. Now, when, when I came up listening to records 
we would, and anyone will tell you this, we'd get the record, put it on, and stare at the cover. That's what we did. We stared at the album cover, and we read every word on it. And while we were listening to that music, staring at the cover, we were loving the music, not because we actually loved the music. We thought we did. What we were really loving was the fact that it was causing us to use our imagination. We would imagine, oh, maybe that was played in a dark room, or maybe he did that standing with an amplifier or whatever. We were having imaginings. And it's the imagining process that makes people like what they like. And if you think about it, most people will tell you the movie was great, but the book was better. They don't know why. It's not because the book was thicker. It's because when you read a novel, you participate in that right in that writing. You get to he might describe a balcony or a staircase, but you get to color it. You get to say what it really looks like in your imagination. But when you see it on a picture, it's force fed to you. So imagine you take a group that you have all kinds of beautiful imaginings about, and all of a sudden you see it on the picture. You're so busy trying to watch the music with your eyes that you lose the ability to imagine it with your ears. Consequently, what happens is, if a band does a DVD or a video of a concert, the, the, the fan goes out and he buys it, he takes it home, he's all excited, he puts it on, and he watches it once, maybe twice. Then he might watch it a third time when his friends come over and they put it on in the background. But after that, it's gone. The music is lost. Because it's, whereas if it's a record, it'll play on his earphone, it'll play on his, in his bathroom, car, wherever he yeah. goes, his car, wherever he goes, it just lives forever. My God, they play them in elevators. You know, so this is the difference. And so I always have this feeling that to do picture-synced uh, music of my style does a disservice to the actual music. Now, I don't, for that reason, I didn't want to. So for 10, 15 years, I just said, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want to, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want to. Well, what happened was in 2010, um, the guys that happened to produce the last 12 Bruce Springsteen videos, uh, they, they got to know me and they said, listen, Frank, you've got to do a show DVD because they all love my show. We'll do it for you. I said, well, I can't afford that. I don't have any money. They said, Frank, we'll do it for you. We just want you to have something like that for whatever, posterity, whatever. It has to go down and done properly with proper cameras and proper sound. And I said, okay, you know what, Peter? It's Peter Daniel. I said, I'll do it on one condition. We'll take one day We'll play for 12 hours. I'll do as much as I can. As a matter of fact, we'll even take the night before for five hours doing the sound checks. It's really 17 hours. I said, we'll let the audience in for the sound check. We'll let the audience in for the day. And we'll just do as many songs as we can. But I want to do all the songs I never did live. I want to go back to my first album, second album, third album, fourth album. I want to pick all these tunes that, you know, we just didn't have a chance to do live. And we'll do all of those. And if, if you're willing to do that and play for the whole, you know, be there for the whole 12 hours and let me do as much as I can, then I'll do it. So I did. And they handed it to me after and said, good luck. And when I came home, I was pretty happy that they had done this wonderful thing for me. I'm also a, a big believer in God. I thought it came from God as a gift. So when I saw that well, the, I, I looked at the guitar solo segment because Peter said to me, why don't you upload something? Because it was Christmas 2010. 
He says, upload something, tell people what we just did. So I took just my guitar solo segment, a part of my guitar solo segment, because I play a song, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. I said, oh, this would be interesting. So I uploaded it to YouTube and wrote, here's what we just did. It'll be coming soon. But I didn't know that what had happened was there was a damage on the audio drum tracks. We basically had 12 hours of music with no usable drums. There was a problem, a technical problem with the converters that they were using for the microphones. And all we had was click, 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 pop, pop, pop. And I said, oh my goodness. We went through all this and we, have, we can't use this. It's like everything's there except that. Now, I happen to be a really, I happen to be a drummer. And I happen to be a really good editor. And I thought, I can fix this. I can resurrect the noises. I can go into the noise and I can basically resurrect these beats because you can't ask the drummer to play it again. He'll never do it properly. He's on film. You're going to see it. It's going it, to, it's going to not match. I said, but I can resurrect what he did, but it was a beat by beat process. So I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sit down. And as long as it takes me, and quite honestly, I thought it might only take six months. I'm going to go beat by beat and clean up all of this noise. And so that I can use these tracks that these guys and God gave me as a gift. Well, it turned into six and a half years. And I just finished. Wow. So this, this last Christmas was a six-year point. Uh, I uploaded one tune from it, which is called The Answer. And I said, here is what this 12 hours looks like. And that's what's on YouTube now. So you've got the old little town of Ethelham from six years ago, and then you've got The Answer now. And between the two of them, you can see that there's going to be this, you know, 12 hour thing. Now I wrote, you know, that we would release it in 2017, but are we going to release it in 2017? That's not dependent on me. If somebody's interested in, in getting it out there, I'm certainly going to talk to them, but let's say nobody is. Let's say people say, ah, we're not interested. You know, who are you? Uh, then I've got to consider, well, maybe I'll just put it out myself like I've been doing for other things. And I have no idea how that'll happen, but my wish is to have it out this year in 2017. That's my wish, but I don't plan anything. <laughs> I don't plan. That's you know, Murphy's Law. <laughs> but there's a lot of artists that use a thing called pledge music. Would you consider doing some kind of pledge music thing where you would put it up? Sure. And, okay, so, so. I'd consider anything. Okay. But the first thing I'm going to do is see, is anybody interested in doing this uh, you know, widespread, the right way, like get it out there, and then I can go on tour, and I can, you know, because I really like to tour. I'd also like to record again. But... You know, if that materializes, listen, if, if people, I was very encouraged because we put this song up and all of a sudden it went to 385,000 people. And I was like, wow, I, I didn't think that would happen. And it goes to maybe a couple of thousand people. So it goes to like 385,000. We're getting a really incredible response. And all of a sudden people are phoning me. I'm talking about business people. You know, we heard you're doing a DVD and we want to do this and that and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, let's talk. I'm, I have no plan. I don't plan anything. I, I actually never did plan anything. I just sort of go with the flow. And uh, if something comes along, um, yeah, I, I won't say no. But if something doesn't come along, well, like you said, there's pledge music, there's Kickstarter, there's all kinds of other ways. I can just print it up myself, sell it on my website. Who knows? I don't know. So we'll see. So we'll see. Um, boy, so many questions. So let me go back to the producing thing. Uh, 
you've been producing your own albums, always have. Is there a point, though, where a studio and a musician needs another set of ears to come in and offer guidance and offer direction? Well, that's the key. That's the key. Okay. Even though I produced all my albums, you always have people around you. And if there's one thing that you always heard me saying to people, whether it's the engineer, the assistant engineer, the person making coffee, my friends, it was always, what do you think of this? Do you think it should do this? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? Because that's what... I believe that to make anything strong, to make anything good, you have to surround yourself with strong people. You have to listen to what they say. You can't think you're right on everything. You can't even think you're right on most things. And so what you do is you reach out and you put the strongest guy you can helping you as an engineer and you put the strongest person you can as a friend and you, people that will disagree with you. And they'll say, look, I think this and I think that. And you gather in all of these ideas and then you make a decision. And 50% of the time, I'll go with what my first feeling was. And 50% of the time, I'll go with what someone else said that should be the, the way to do something. And, and that's how I've always operated. And that's probably why I was able to produce. But while this, and I produced other bands, and I do it the same way with the other bands, I do not walk into another band situation, of which I do very few, only what I like. And I will never come up with a band and say, no, I think you need to change to this. My job as a producer is to listen to what they're doing, to try to determine what it is they're trying to do. In other words, I, I look at it like a person's trying to talk to me from another language and he's using, he doesn't have all the vocabulary. So I have to describe, you know, figure out what he's trying to describe and then give him the right words in the right language that he's trying to say. So music works the same way because for me, music is definitely a language, very much a language. Oh, I agree. So, and we so, learn it that way as language. So you, you see yourself in, in those roles more as a coach where I'm not going to go play this football game. You're going to have to go play it, but let me right. give you some pointers on, on And my experience tells us that we'll do it this way. I have one other very, very, very large advantage, let's say, over a lot of producers and engineers in that I am a technical person as well as an artist. I understand electronics completely. I build all my own equipment. So I know what's happening when we turn a knob you know, I know why to go for a certain knob and why to do something. I know what's going to be the result. I know which amp is going to do what we need it to do before we need to go try it out with 50 other ones. So that gives me a, a leg up in that regard. And the fact that I'm also a drummer allows me to understand that aspect of rock music, which really relies heavily on drums. And I dare say that a lot of my songs are written with drums in mind. And um, well, you most, know, of, most of the DVD is like, you know, we're playing and there's the drummer. We're playing and there's the drummer. So it was important for me to make sure I resurrected the drummer's tracks because they're extremely important. Yeah, well, in my own personal belief is that the drums and the bass really are the foundation that you build a house on. And mm -hmm. if, if you don't get that drum sound dialed in and you don't get that, you know, that rhythm section locked in, I mean, the guitar right. can sort of flare where you want, but if you're drumming... Well, it's, all, it's all part and parcel. You're, you're totally right. But rather than... I don't look at it as much as a... Let's say a house has a foundation and it also has some nice fancy turrets on top of it. 
which you can do with or without. I rather look at it more like uh, a puzzle that requires all the pieces. And you should, you should, um, the puzzle should really be dependent on everything that's there. If you take away, for instance, no one wants to do a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and have the white piece in the middle missing. You know, it's, it's just not nice when that happens to you. So I think that everything is really dependent on everything else. And one of the production techniques that a lot of people don't realize is, is the production technique of perspective, right? Perspective is really a lot more important in music than it is in many other things. And as an example, I often, because I teach some of these guys this, I often use the, uh, what we can see with our eyes to demonstrate that. So if I take a photo of somebody and he's very close to the camera, we can make it look like he's bigger than a tree if the tree is in the right position in the photo. It looks like he's standing next to a tree and he's as tall as a tree because of the angle of the camera. So perspective is everything. So give you an example. Many guys will come up to me and say, Frank, you know, help me get a really big guitar sound. I'm playing with this amp and it's got a, it doesn't have a big guitar sound. I says, well, it doesn't have a big guitar sound in that track because your drum sound is big. You have to make what sounds like big drums, but they have to actually be small in order for the guitar to be big. And so when you listen to records like, let's say we'll take Jimi Hendrix Experience, which I think had fantastic guitar sounds. People go, my goodness, Jimi Hendrix's guitar is amazing. Listen to Little Wayne, listen to this, listen to that, the tone of the guitar. Say, yeah, but listen to the drums and bass. They're really not, you know, huge, big, overly produced sounds. So Jimmy's guitar sounds bigger than it is. But if I took Jimmy's guitar right off the tape as it was, and I put it on, on uh, you know, Knights of White Satin or something like that, it just wouldn't work because they have these big cannonading snare drums with reverb and sound like they're in a hall that's 50 feet long. All of a sudden, Jimmy's guitar becomes, sounds like a kazoo. So the perspective is very, very important in how you lay out uh, the audio field. And one of the things that tells you what to do with perspective is the song itself. Whenever you make a song or record a song, you have to listen to the song itself as it's being built. It will tell you, I need a piano, or I'd like a tambourine, and this tambourine should be really thin. Like, it, it tells you that if you really listen to the song. I believe the songs have, I hate to call them songs, because sometimes they're just jams, but you know what I mean. The recording tells you what it needs, and as a producer, you have to juggle the vision of what you're trying to do along with the opinion of the song. It's got an opinion. Once it begins to take shape, it's like having a kid. You have children, and they're your children, but they're separate from you. They have opinions too, and they're important. What they think is important. It's not just that they're your children. So this is the way I look at a song. It, it takes life. It, it gets born. The recording gets born, and it takes you sometimes places you didn't even think it would go. But at the end of the day, yeah. you go, wow, am I glad I listened to it? Because it took me somewhere I've just learned something. And, and that speaks to what you were saying before about adding the visual, because there are songs for me growing up that I ended up seeing on Much Music and in MTV when I was down in the States 
that have been completely ruined for me because I didn't like the visual. I didn't like the video. And so mm -hmm. um, I can think of one very specifically. Uh, you know, I've always been a big Kiss fan, and they have this video for a song called Heaven's on Fire. I've seen it. It's awful. Yeah. <laughs> and it's ruined don't the tell, song. Don't tell Gene that. He'll get no, mad at you. No, I know, but it's ruined <laughs> the song for me. But um, since you mentioned children, you, you have three daughters. Yeah. Um, just the most important thing in your life. Totally. Uh, well, other than God. Yeah. Other than God. Yeah. If, if, you, if, you, if we may, and, and does this tie in at all to in 1993 when you walked away from the music business? Was oh, it? totally. Yeah. Okay, that's so, when I started having them. <laughs> well, well, that's it. That, because I know the ages sort of, sort, of, sort of fits in. Did you sort of just walk away because you wanted to be a dad, or was it just coincidental yeah. that you had? Oh, so. Talk to me a little bit about that decision. I mean, I mean, obviously for you it wasn't a decision. It's like I have kids, I'm staying home. Period. Well, no, it was. It was. I, I've been with my wife for 37 years, right. since 1980. So, so you know, she's with me for the first 13 years, and then at, after 13 years, I mean, she goes on the road with me. She's part of what we do, you know. So, and we're we were 24/7 all the time together. So by '93, I said, you know what, Denise, it's like let's just go do something else like this. The business is so ugly and awful and so non fun. You know, my first role is first rule is have fun. And if it ain't fun, just don't do it. Go do something that is fun. So I said, you know what, let's just do the other thing. Let's go have the children now. And, uh, and yeah, okay, let's do that. And well, what are you going to do? Well, I'll build computers because I build computers. So I don't have to play music. I can still play music at home. You know, it's, it's okay for me to play music at home. I don't have to play live outside. It doesn't matter. It's the same. I get the same thrill. So I can play music at home, and I'll build computers to make a living. And, uh, you know, I started building computers and having the kids. And then as the kids began to be born, the three, they came like two years apart, um, I thought, you know what? This would be pretty cool if the kids saw what their dad did do because by, you know, after six or seven years had passed, it was like, hey, they think their dad's this computer guy. <laughs> they don't know anything about what he actually does. So why don't we go back back out again, do a few things, you know, now and again, a few gigs, and bring them with us. So I started bringing them to everything I did, because I was always with them anyway. And so then they came on the road. I would take them out of school. The teachers would freak out. But then when they would come back, the teachers would say, wow, they're ahead of the class. Whatever you're doing, don't stop doing it. They always ended up as honor students every year, every semester, for every year of school, every one of them. So they thought, wow, you must be doing something right. Because they're, they're, they're not just, they're not, just lag, not lagging behind. They're way ahead. So they became very, very uh, you know, intuitive of the world, the world that we lived in. And they all became musicians, not because I told them to, but they did. My eldest is a classical soprano who is also into Broadway theater, and she... She teaches singing, and she's you know university graduate McGill and Concordia in uh, in uh, what do you call it? They're writing symphonies and stuff, you know. So and then the other one plays guitar just like me, and then the other one plays guitar. And her boyfriend's in a country Americana band called Carabustu from Montreal. Really great guy, Ben. Uh, they play you know pedal steel and mandolin and all these other cool instruments, and they do really cool music with harmony. So we're really involved. We're all very involved in this. It's, it's, it was the greatest of times to go through that with them till this very day. And uh, it's continuing at the moment. And now if this DVD does well and comes out and someone says, Frank, you know, we want you to go on the road, they'll probably come with me again. 
like they always have. And, except and, this time, except this time, they'll probably bring their boyfriends with them because <laughs> they're all older. <laughs> and, and at no point did you ever say to them, "Don't do the the music business stuff." Because oh God, no. Okay. No, no, no. I didn't. I I never said to them, "Don't do anything." The only thing I probably said to them is, "Don't go to school." <laughs> I'm not a big I'm not a big believer in uh, the academic system because I think it makes people you know very similar and uh, non unique. But you know what I said? That doesn't mean don't learn. Right. I mean, I learn a lot. I, I'm, I have a, you could say I have a degree in theology and, and a bunch of other subjects, electronics, physics, auto mechanics, all kinds of things that, that I do. But I learned them on my own. I only went to grade seven in school, so I never really cared much about the academic system. I think they don't teach well. They don't teach right. And I think that the way to properly teach, I do teach private students things, and I think the way to teach is you, you make sure that the person comes away from your teaching with a eureka moment. They have to say, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. They have to do that. If they're not doing that, you're not teaching them, you're telling them. Yeah, I, and, I happen and, to agree and, with you, by the way. Yeah, that's, that's teaching. Proper teaching is imparting the knowledge to the other person by any means necessary so that when they leave you, they know it, but they know they knew it all along. Because everything you've ever learned, whether it was two and two made four, when it was confusing, it was confusing. But when you got it, you went, oh, of course, I knew that. You always had that feeling. Whenever you learned anything, properly learned it. And whatever you didn't get that feeling for, are all the things you, quote, forgot since high school. They didn't teach you properly. Well, I think where, where high school lets people down is that they just don't put any emphasis on critical thinking. It's just a whole bunch of learn these facts and then regurgitate them to me later. And, and I have a huge, huge issue with that. I mean, I just had a debate with the principal at my daughter's school. She's like, oh, history this, history that. We're going to punish her here and give her that. And and I just went, listen, Jada's an artistic type. She she doesn't get um, history and probably never will. And, and Well, you see, you're making a mistake there, Mitch. Okay. okay. I, I went through this. I went through this. And here's the real way to deal with it. The real way to deal with it is not to try to reason with those who are unreasonable. Because you can't win that argument. You have to just say no. That's yeah. what I did. I just said, no, you'll do what I tell you to do. You will teach them what I tell you to teach them, or you won't teach them. And that's the end of the story, yeah. because they're your children. Yeah. They're not going to raise your children. I, I, do, I am one of those people who has a very serious problem with the nanny state, right. with, with governments or, or institutions taking over the raising or thinking processes of my offspring. I do not agree with that. But, you know, some of that is caused by people who just, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been around the school system, and, and some folks just see school as a babysitting place. They say, listen. Right. And they, they, you know what? They, they're sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. Yeah. And that's why we have the problems we have. I mean, come on. Today, safe spaces and giving coloring books to people because they can't stand to hear the word no. It's gone insane. <laughs> totally yeah. insane. Yeah. It's like these people don't live in the real world yet, and they can't take the word no. 
And as soon as they hear the word no, they'll pull their hair and scream and say that they're all for social justice or whatever they're talking about. They don't even know they're talking about. They're all 15 years old. And, and yet they have not understood that they're about to go into a world that will tell them no. And they have to learn how to, like you said, critical thinking. But this nanny state idea that they will take children and indoctrinate them with ideas that are just have no basis in reality. They're all based on what we, they would like the world to be. Then what happens is we get a society of people who do not know how to manage the very society they live in. So it was very important to me. Every day that my kids came home from school, I said, what did they tell you today? You have to be hands-on. I said, I spent every minute with my children. And I said, what did they tell you today? And they'd say, well, they taught us this, and they taught us this, and they taught us that. And I'd say, well, this is right, and this is right, but this is not. And here's the truth. And I would show them the bright books. And I would say, here's what's really, you know, you can't argue with the multiplication table. It's an objective truth. As much as you might like it to be wrong, it'll be right before and after you're here. And there are many objective truths that are self-evident, but the society in our schooling systems does not allow teach. If I was a teacher in that system, they wouldn't allow me to do what I'm doing because they want to have it curriculized in basically the way they want it to be for whatever reason. Maybe they took a bribe. Who knows? But I'm not that guy. So I was very hands-on with my kids. You could say that my kids went to school every day that they went, and they also went to homeschool at the same time. So they learned the social skills and interaction with the rest of society. They learned all the textbooks. They learned all the stuff they needed to learn to pass, but they also learned what they needed to learn. And that's why they were, no kid, I'm not kidding you, they were honor students in every single year. And one year, one of my children, one of my children, uh, kids missed 90 days out of 180 and still was an honor student. Nin- 90 days, that, that must have had a, an illness, I that's, can imagine. That, that's no, awful. no, that's because we were going on the road and doing things. Oh, well, that's a good reason to miss school. No, okay. but you know, every day I would wake up with the kids and say, "What are you doing today? Oh, we're going to school, Dad." I'd say, "Oh, come on, let's just do something else." Oh no, we want to go. I'd say, "Okay, go. I'll see you later." This <laughs> is a very different, very, very different dynamic. Now, when it worked with the first one, you know, I had friends that said, "Oh my goodness, what are you doing? This is not good." I'd say, "Well, it seems to be working." And the second one worked again. Third one worked again. I said, you can't argue with success. I didn't change anything, and all three ended up the same. Like, they all ended up being very, they're very well doing today. They're all good jobs, good boyfriends, good, you know, like they're, they're in great shape. And so, yeah, it works. It does. And, 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 I'm, and I'm assuming that you taught them personal responsibility, because that's what I see. They're these totally days. responsible. Yeah, they're totally, today? completely, but not because I taught them but because they knew that that's what had to happen. They just know that. Yeah. It's like, you know... Uh, but it's okay, missing like, from so many people now. They're well, just it's, like, mi- it's, it's, it's missing your fault. Because, it's your fault. Yeah, like, no, yeah, it's, it's not. Missing because, no, it's missing because the methodology being employed by a great many parents on their children, they're getting from books or their friends or some guy that wrote a self-help book or the government. But that's not the right way. 
that's just not. I'm sorry to say they can get mad at me. You know, I told that to the teachers at one point. I said, if you're not imparting the knowledge to your student by the time they leave, you're not a teacher. You're not. By definition, you're a teller. Right. You're not a teacher. A teacher has taught something. Don't call yourself a teacher if you didn't teach it. Well, I don't care that you. I don't care that you tried to teach it. You didn't get the message across, so you didn't teach it. By by the way, some of the 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 new politically correct language is that they're no longer teachers; they are facilitators. So yeah, they're facilitators. (laughs) Everybody's a facilitator. But you know how much you love your children, right? Of course. And and you don't want to leave that into the hands of people that don't love your children, because they don't. I agree. They could say they do. Oh, I love your son. He's such a cute little boy. I really love him. End of the day, it's like, who? A year later? You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, people make so much out of the things that they do, even in our music. Like, how many bands think that they're doing earth-shattering things and that they're curing cancer or something? You know, all we're doing is playing music. And, and we're lucky to get paid for it, if we do. And we're nobody. We're just people who are making music. It's great. Everyone loves it. It's wonderful. It brings a smile to someone's face. Certainly brings a smile to my face if I play it. But it's not earth-shattering. It's not so important. We're not saving the world. But people like to believe that about themselves, that they're saving the world or they're very important. That's the whole Facebook thing and Twitter. It's like, here I am. Here I am. I count. I matter. I matter. Hear me. I'm not alone. You know, it's funny you mention that because folks always say to me, oh, you get to meet rock stars. Oh, you're into... Don't you get nervous? Don't... And my answer is always like, well, no, they're, they're, they're just people like you and me. They, they just have they a are, job. They are. It's We're just a just different job. Guys. Look, all, the only thing different with me and anybody that's not me, let's say, from my time, is I was right. just lucky. Right. That's it. You know, at the end of the day, you could be the greatest person in the world. You could have saved the world. You could have done a million things that were fantastic. And when you die, the biggest determination about who comes to your funeral is the weather. Really that's who the, you know. That's basically what ends. Oh, it's too bad. The weather's too bad. I wanted to go, but I didn't. Yeah, it was snowing it, today. Couldn't go. It comes down to the weather. Right. No matter what you did. And here's the other thing: when you die, and fifty do show up, or fifty, or a hundred, or even ten, they're all there because it's a big deal. But on the second weekend, only your family's there, and for every weekend after, yeah. it's fleeting. It doesn't matter, and. If I ask you what was the name of your great-grandfather, you don't know it, or his wife, or if they had brothers or sisters, or what they did, or what job he had, what city he lived, what was his address, what did he say, did he do anything important? We don't even know the details about our own relatives two generations removed. Well, I hate How is the world going to care? I hate to admit it, but... I, but... All my grandparents were passed away before I was born, so I don't even know their names. <laughs> right, but you see, you're not, that's not unique. No, it's not awful. It's not unique. It's absolutely true. Right. Go ask that question about many people. They can say, well, I think his name was John, right. or maybe it was Bob. Oh, yeah, what did he do? What did Bob do? Um, um, I don't know. Did he, did he drive a truck? Did he have two hands? I mean, do you know anything about the guy? And yet he might have been the most important person of his time. And his own relatives don't know. So why would the world know? 
Right, you're right. But the We're one very good, insignificant here. The, the one good thing is that uh, my mom is 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 here today, and she's she's with my ten uh, year old. So when we're done, I'm gonna go find out because uh, it's like, wait, yeah. I don't know. Um, before we wrap up though, because there, there's so much that we haven't covered, um, let me throw sort of three topics at you and and pick the one you want, and we'll we'll finish there. Um, Mahogany Rush Four is one of the the greatest albums, and and it it really marked. Uh, a point in your career, in your playing, in your everything. Same can be said for World Anthem. In fact, same can be said for almost every album, but those two in particular. And then there's also California Jam 2. Why has that festival, and there's, you know, there's 50 festivals, why has that one taken on sort of mythical proportions where people are still in 2017 saying, on this day, California Jam 2 happened, on this... Yeah, because it was 333,000 people, and that's all. That's the only reason. Oops. And that was one of the worst, for me, one of the worst experiences of my life. Oh, okay, so you know what, let's I, go with that. I often, I often say that story. People ask me, you played Cal Jam too. You actually closed the show, blah, 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 whatever. It was like, yeah, but believe me, the whole day was a real pain. <laughs> having, to, having to be back there with all the posers and all the phonies, you know, all the... the the press people and the entertainment tonight and all of that stuff that's turning it into like some kind of, I don't know what it just was not believe. I remember saying this ain't Woodstock. You know, like that's basically what I was saying that day. It was just not a happy day for me, but the gig was good. You know, we did the gig and, um, and it was fun to actually do the gig. <laughs> That's the best part of any of those festivals. I did so many of them. I, I did more than I can count. Every day was another one. And every time, the gig was good. <laughs> Once, to the moment we actually got to play, until the time it was over, that was the good part. Those were great. <laughs> the well, rest you know, of it was like, yuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that in the sense, now, I, I'm not a player and I haven't been on stage in a playing capacity, but when you're there and, and you, the bus is coming in and it's dusty and it's hot or it's rainy and it's cold or the it's catering, the whole thing going on backstage and even sometimes in the audience is just miserable. I got to pee and I can't find a toilet. And but when you Well, get the, only, the only great <laughs> thing know, of those days I did, I got to tell you though, in all fairness, any show I did like that that was done by Bill Graham was not bad. Those were all great, backstage and everything. Because people didn't act like idiots around Bill Graham. You know, let's face it, he was Bill Graham. Right. And, and, and he was a great guy. I was very good friends with him. He liked me. I liked him. Um, he did great stuff. Monsters of Rock, uh, Day on the Green, you know, when we did those gigs, oh, if I did a Bill Grant, like the Winterland gigs that we did for Bill, uh, those were like the highlight of my life. Those were, because it was the closest thing I could get to real Woodstock people. You know, playing with the airplane or the Starship people or whatever, you know. It was, for me, that was really, really fantastic because it's from my own youth that, you know, those are the people I kind of admired in the music business. So a Bill Graham date are the outliers that say you know, that make you know every other festival look stupid. Yeah, no, I, I have to qualify that. And, and the Winterland stuff. Uh, oh, great, great. Uh, and the fact that also that he filmed them all. So we have these ones with Sammy Hager and with Kiss and all these bands from Winterland, black and white. It just 
It's just perfect, and mm-hmm. so glad that he documented all that stuff. Um, you know, we, we've done an hour. I could probably do another hour, hour and a half. I could but, do five. Yeah, I know. So why don't we, for today, stop here and then maybe think down the road about a part two? Because we haven't gotten into all the albums and all that. Um, there's just so much. Um, so, But where where do we go from here in terms of 2017, 2018? There's the DVD that <clears throat> will at some point appear. Well, will. I say will. I say may because I don't say will because it's it's God's will. So okay. it's supposed to. It'll come out. If not, well, it won't. You know. So that's the way I look at it. God willing. God willing. But uh, are we doing more shows? Are there, are there more things? You know, is there another album on the horizon? Because I think the last one was 2012, which I believe was a, a well. I want to finish my blue. I want to finish this blues album I've been working on for ten years. And I <laughs> took a sabbatical from it to do this this thing but you know i want to do that and it's really not a normal blues album it's it's uh not what you'd expect everyone thinks frank's doing a blues album it's going to be this texas blues stuff it's not it's very new orleans style piano oriented you know with me playing guitar on it so it's a very think ray charles meets dr john and has frank and has frank playing guitar in the band so that's basically the blues album i want to finish that uh but yeah, I want to do another album. I want to do some of my pop tunes. I'm a closet pop writer. I'd like to get those recorded, but not by me. I'd like to get them recorded by other bands that suit the songs. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to do. And my answer to every question when somebody comes along is yes. It always starts with yes. You know, Do you want to play here? Yes. There's always a but, though. Can we? Right. Or you know, will will we have to pay to do it? No, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So there's the yes, the devil's in the details. But my answer is yes. Do you want to tour? Yes. Do you want to record again? Yes. Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to keep on doing what you're doing? Yes. There's no no there, but it's always sub you know subject to reality. Right. And you know how much will it cost? Will can we? Does anybody really care? Like. If somebody told me, we'll pay for it, you'll do it, but nobody cares, I say no. <laughs> it's just as valid as not having the money. You know, if someone says to pay me a million dollars to go on a tour that no one will come to, I'll say no, I don't want the million dollars. So everything's got, everything's got to fit, you know. Um, the, the last thing I'll, I'll ask you, just I'll, we'll call this part one, but the last thing is you, you've always been sort of very loyal to Montreal. You've always sort of lived here you never really sort of ran off and and no nope. um my family's buried on the mountain i'm going to be buried there too yeah were you ever tempted to to take up and you know near the sunset strip and be part of sure that? sure you got tempted yeah. that's why i wrote that song called poppy right a poppy is a beautiful thing that tempts you but listen you get tempted but the difference between us and animals is that we can resist an impulse and so you know that's that's what reason does for you gives you the right to say, I can ignore an instinct. So if you instinctively feel like moving to L.A. and being with all this, the sunshine and everything else, you can look at it critically. Well, you said critical thinking a while ago. You can look at it critically and saying, yes, but what is the right thing to do? And you can make a decision, even if sometimes it's not what you'd like to do. Because what you, the, a purpose is always better than a plan. Because purposes, purposes do things. Plans, plans come and go. And they also change all the time. No, but I, I sort of feel the same way because I've I've always been able to, you know, I, I've always thought, well, I'll go to San Diego or I'll go into Arizona and it's nice and warm and I don't have to deal with it. But there's just something about this city, even in the winter, even in the cold. And 
blah blah blah. There's just something about you know the Montreal Canadians and the of mountain. Of course, we, and yes, and I something. and by the way, you know, I, I my neighbor when I was young was Dickie Moore, so we we well, we, uh, we, we I was friends with his son, and you know, so we we've been through the whole Montreal thing. We get it, okay? We've got old Montreal, new Montreal, hockey. You know, we've got all the things that we know about the French, the English, the, the mix. Don't forget, it was French Quebec that made my name get out there, not English Quebec. That's right. French Quebec, That's yes, right. big time. Oh. And the English, the English media didn't want to know about Mahogany Rush. They, Donald K. Donald, all those people, they didn't want to know. All the radio stations, it was French Quebec that I owe it to. That, that made the Americans see that this was going on. And then the Americans came up and signed me in, in America before I was even considered signed here. So it was uh, Quebec and Montreal particularly is home. And it's, it's the only place on the entire continent that is what it is. Try to find another place like Montreal. I've been all over the place. You don't find it. No. You really it's don't. not quite the same today, let's say, as it was back then, because it's a little bit different now. But it's still it's home, and I'm at I'm at the end of the racetrack, and you know there's there's less racetrack ahead of me than behind me. So where where am I going to go? You know, this is Montreal. This is where I'll stay. Yeah. I always knew I would, and uh, yeah, and great, I always will. It's a great place. It just it's just just a very unique place, and. Uh, and By the way, one little thing I want to tell you. Yeah. I have an album called Real Live. Yeah. If you look carefully at the cover, yeah. in the in the moon in the beam of light before the word real, you'll see M O N T. There you go. For for Montreal. And uh it's sm- it's very hard to see when it says Montreal Live. Oh, okay. I'm gonna go check that. But and, and I will finish with this. My neighbor growing up was Ken Dryden. Oh, good, <laughs> Ken. So there you go. Uh, it, it was always fun because I would I would literally uh, go to school and then cut through his backyard to get home. And here was the Stanley Cup winning goalie in the 1970s. And I was yeah. a kid in those 1970s. And yeah. at Halloween, he would hand out pucks instead of candy. And if, yeah. you, if you shoveled his driveway, he'd give you a game-played hockey goalie stick and... Well, in the fifties, when we lived next to Dickey, there was no shortage of the of those Canadians coming over to the house and having backyard barbecues yep. and giving us toques. And because I was friends with his son, and they take us in the car to an ice cream place called Saint Albain, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and we would all go like all sitting on the back of a convertible, all the kids, and we would go with them. They buy us ice cream and uh, hockey sweaters, and it was just you know it was, a, it was the best of times. The best of times, the best of times. Uh, Frank, speaking of best of times, this has been the best of times in terms of interview. Uh, thank you, and uh, we will definitely have to do a a part two. Yeah, well, Mitch, you don't have to have an an appointment. Just call me. You have my number. You want to talk? Call me, even if you don't want to tape it. Okay, so just call me. I'm I'm very open. Everybody can access me. I'm not an uh, an inaccessible guy. We don't have to. As go a matter of a... fact, every <laughs> friend I have was a fan. There you go. So so we don't have to go through eighteen publicists and a record. No, company. <laughs> I don't have that. I don't have that. You just call me up. Hi, Frank. How you doing, it's Mitch? Absolutely. We talk. Whatever you want to record it, record it. You don't want to record it, don't. That's, that's the way to do it. And uh, it's been a great pleasure, an absolute great pleasure. And it is definitely time for me to get my took us back to a Frank show because it's, it's been, I don't even know when the Club Soda show was, uh, probably like eight years ago. 
Uh, six years ago when we did the DVD, I played at the, um, uh, just before the DVD, a week, mm. a couple of weeks before the last show I did here was mm. at the Corona, the Corona Theater. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, so it might have been the Corona one. So it's it was the first Corona Theater gig by any band. We we booked it ourselves. We hired the place because Ruben didn't, you know, Ruben gave me all kinds of problems with Club Soda. I says, you know what, screw all that Ticketmaster crap. I'm going to go do my own show. We did it. We sold it out. It was great. We had a wonderful time. And it's really one of the best shows I've ever had in Montreal. Yeah. There's some there's some YouTube of it on on there, but I hate YouTube videos. You right, know? right, right. And and that but, Corona's a great venue. It, it's just a fun venue. It's, it's a nice intimate venue. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank so you. Give Frank. me a call, Mitch, anytime. Absolutely. And we'll do it and again. And email me or whatever. Let me know when it's up, or give me a link so I can give it to to the people on my site and they can go watch it. Thank you. Much right, much man. appreciated. Have a Ciao. good one. Bye-bye now. Bye. And there you have it, folks. My interview with legendary guitarist Frank Marino. We covered everything under the sun. Please check me out on Twitter, at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H, at Mitch underscore Lafon on Instagram. Check out the new Deep Purple album, Infinite, and anything Frank Marino. Uh, and there you go. Ciao. Bye for now. <laughs>Hear it before Congress? I'd like to see them ask you a question while you're moving slow on my chili con carne. Hell, maybe it's a grand jury asking you about why you used recalled meat. A friend told me that happens. Where there's nothing grander than my chili verde with shredded venison to make all those memories of cutting calls versus public safety go out the window if you were or were not complicit in those things. In fact, there's only two things I'm sure of. One, my chili's delicious. And two, it's so good you'll get to keep your children. Want to know more about it? You can check out the Team Tiger Awesome Show right here on the Jericho Network. Podcast One. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.